Hello, welcome back. So, Casey, today we're talking about a topic that me and you talk about together all the time, in all particular time. you, <laughs> <laughs> talking about tech, talking about tech. Okay, um, in particular, I think something that you will enjoy. Yeah, so we are uh, we're talking about emergency and emergency media in particular, and we. So this is one of those things. This is why I love tech. And Jamil, you make fun of me all the time because it's a love hate relationship. It is a love hate relationship. My many years of having a flip phone, but I'm also at the same time fascinated with tech because it's everywhere and it impacts our lives whether or not we engage with it or not. And so today we're talking about technologies and media work that we don't necessarily that can be invisible to us and yet is everywhere yes so obviously i'm fascinated yes so we're talking about you know services that i I don't think many people every day are thinking about or how they interact with their communities Mm -hmm. in terms of what dictates an emergency and what doesn't and how do we respond to said emergency right and and there are a lot of things that I think of myself as someone who thinks critically about the world and questions a lot of stuff, but I'm like, wow, I actually didn't know, you know, what's the infrastructure behind 911? Yes. When you make that call, depending on where you are, what are the services and resources that community has to respond to that emergency? Mm -hmm. So anyway, this is a highly relevant conversation um, to everyone, frankly, Um, and I'm very excited to have it. So today with with us, our guest, uh, Liz Elsesser, who's an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, a senior faculty fellow at the Miller Center. And we're here talking about her new book, In Case of Emergency, How Technologies Mediate Crisis and Normalize Inequality. Liz, welcome to Real Talk. Hi, thank you. I am excited to be here. I feel like you've already highlighted some of my favorite parts of the book and some of the things that people find um, most surprising. So, Mm. yeah. Well, that's great. Well, let's, why don't we start off with, you know, what is an emergency? Like, how is that defined? Who is defining what that means? But like sort of fundamentally, that's like the base question. What What is an emergency? I think that's a great place to start because we all, you know, feel like we know this. Like, is this an emergency? Uh, I can. Right. We feel like we know, but we don't often think about it. And then there are the words that we use that are so closely related, things like crisis or disaster, mm-hmm. but they're not all the same, right? So if I am hiking in the woods behind my house uh, and I twist my ankle, that's kind of an emergency for me. Mm-hmm. Like I can no longer get back to my house the way I got out there. I have to figure out what to do. But it's not something we would consider a disaster, right? right. And Correct. so when we start parsing these differences, um, it seems to me that the best ways to think about emergency is that we're talking about a circumstance that disrupts a person or a community's everyday life mm-hmm. and produces um an extremely intense experience of the moment, right? It's full of feelings of like fear and panic and pain and um, concern, right? There's this sort of heady moment that's happening right now. Uh, And emergencies demand that we do something. Mm -hmm. Something has to happen in order to either address what has gone wrong or prevent it from getting worse, right? So if, if I'm hiking on that trail, I'm having all kinds of feelings. And I also feel like I need to do something because if I try to walk home, my ankle's going to get worse. If I don't do anything, I'm trapped in the woods for, I don't know how long. Mm -hmm. Right. So all of these things kind of come together, this sense of like, it's a change that is worse than what was before. It's happening now. We feel it really intensely and we have to do something. Yeah. The, and also there's this idea that there is like a normal state and that you can be returned to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or cured. Um, totally. That an emergency is something that we think of that can be fixed. Right. Uh, 
right? That we can return to that prior state. And, and I talk about this a lot in the book because I think a lot of how we think about emergency ends up relying on what we take for granted as normal. Right. Right. So I gave you this example of hiking behind my house because it's a thing that I can do. It's part of my normal life. But that's not part of everyone's normal. Mm-hmm. Right. And so depending on issues of race, disability, gender, uh, the sort of different geographies of where we live in urban or rural spaces, what is normal can look really different. And thus, what is an emergency can look really different. But we have all of these systems set up from 911 to government alerts that rely upon a pretty narrow range of normal Uh in their definition of what then is an emergency. Yes, and it almost seems like because we're dictating emergency on something out of the ordinary from this normal state, and because we all have a different idea of what this normal state looks like, that it can also ignore certain forms of emergency, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like race, um, inequities, climate change, like other things that may be emergencies as well are often ignored because they're kind of lumped in with this sense of normalcy. Right, because it's like food insecurity, right? Like if, if you're struggling to get food every day, if it's every day, then it's not this sort of punctuating event, um, that's like, exactly. oh, here's this this emergency. And, and there are steps to be taken that can fix that emergency. Um, yeah, and without systemic, that, right. Right. And without that sense of sort of a punctuating event, we often don't have the tools to address these things mm-hmm. um, as directly. Um, a colleague of mine here at UVA, Jennifer Rubenstein uh, in politics, has talked about this with regard to sort of asking the government for emergency aid. Uh, and she points out that there are some things that are just not legible in that system. So if you live in an area with, say, extensive gun violence, there is no one to report that to. There is no form of aid for that. That is something that we take for granted as normal in certain places mm-hmm. um, and then as an emergency only in other specific contexts. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking about... Um this morning about how, you know, just thinking about your book and thinking about how emergency calls for immediate action and how climate activists are trying to shift the language to climate emergency to demand that immediate action. And not sure if that's been, to what degree that's been effective or not, because we're also talking about an ongoing systemic issue. Yeah. Issue. Um, Yeah, I I think that's a really great example of where um, the language and framing of emergency is potentially really helpful, uh, because I think a lot of us are inured to the idea of climate change as being, you know, change is kind of a neutral thing. Everything changes. Uh, But I question the degree of uptake around climate emergency, because that shift is really powerful if you convince people to make it. Right. And I think climate activists have largely made it, um, but I don't see it shifting into policy realms in quite the same way. Um, or um, I did a lot of interviews for this book with people who work in emergency management. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what emergency management worries about these days is climate emergency, flooding, fires, um, irregular weather patterns that disrupt entire communities. Uh, but they're not seeing the kinds of resources and intervention that would address climate emergency as the root of these causes, hmm. right? They get resources to fix this flood, um, but they're not seeing bigger picture change. Right. That's more the disaster after the fact remediation. Yeah. But but emergency, it does gather and, and create energy. If you just think about somebody on your street who's experiencing a medical emergency, people reorganize themselves to get that person mm-hmm. help, and it happens fast. Um, but then if we think about the example of what we're talking about with climate, it looks quite different, that we're waiting yeah. for the thing to happen, dealing with that, but not looking at, at ways that that can be yeah. remediated or like, you know, helped in the beginning, you know, before things turn mm-hmm. into these, all of these individual disasters. 
and even like slightly on a tangent, but I'm thinking about like who's a threat and who's not a threat for sure. In terms of what is an emergency versus a community response, mm-hmm. like we have this person who maybe in the neighborhood is known. Right, he's a known member. Um, we know where he lives, and maybe he had too much to drink, and maybe he's being a little irate. So, is that an emergency where we call nine one one, or is it more of a community effort to maybe talk to him, calm him down, bring him back to his home, um, and like mediate that situation with community members if it's safe to do so? So, like this idea of who's a threat versus not a threat, who's mm-hmm. an outsider of the community versus who's like. A part of the community and how does that like show up when we think about emergency response nationwide right and there's so many examples of people calling 911 on somebody and then even sometimes this happened in in madison um wisconsin liz when i think both of us yeah. were there when somebody's drunk neighbor went to the wrong like came into her apartment she had called 911 and i think said oh no never mind never mind like this i know who this is when the police got there and they shot and killed him Mm. You know, so there are mm. also these moments where I'm not saying that she was wrong initially to be fearful that somebody's breaking into her home, but there are ways that um, people are misrecognized or not known, or people are very quick to call 911 um, or assume that somebody's a threat when they're just being a person. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think this gets to one of the challenges with 911 in particular, which is that. There are a lot of people who don't know of alternatives, Uh Uh, right? If you are, you know, in an apartment by yourself and someone starts breaking in, it's hard to know what your options are beyond calling 911, right? What other sorts of um, resources and help can you access and can you access quickly? Uh, And often our communities aren't set up um, to be supportive in that way. Um, I, for the first time in my life, live in a very social neighborhood, but that's the exception to the rule. Uh, And so knowing what to do in these situations to move towards community response uh, is something that's hard because we are told from a very, very young Mm -hmm. age, like if something's wrong, you call 911 um, and it is quick and it is simple and it is something that we can do from anywhere with a mobile phone. So we start to see this sort of default patterning where that's people's first step, Mm -hmm. um, but it leads to all kinds of unintended consequences. And as I talk about in the book, once you call 911, you're not really in control of the emergency anymore. Right. Uh, Right, you're making the call, but the 911 call taker who answers is going to be interpreting what you say and making decisions about Mm -hmm. what to do next. Sometimes the software program that they're using will automate a few of those decisions. Hmm. Uh, Once they decide who to send out, is it paramedics? Is it police? Is it both? Is it something else? Uh, That's going to shape the response um, in hugely impactful ways. Um, So there's a a loss of control that happens when you call because the system operates on an entirely different level than the individual. Yes. And I, what I've taken away from this book is how emergency can be cultural. And Mm -hmm. I have never necessarily thought of it so like concretely, but where some people have grown up with the fact of, if you have an issue called the 911, I had the completely different experience. So I was taught to almost never call 911 unless you're like bleeding and dying. So I come from a community that is often disenfranchised and is full of a lot of minorities. And so calling the police typically seems like an escalation that once you start can be really hard to pull back. And so when I think back to my childhood and how we dealt with emergencies where, okay, this would probably be pretty okay to call 911 for, Instead, no one called 911. We knew our neighbors. We would go get a neighbor. We would try de-escalation before I even knew what de-escalation was as an academic term. And we would work in tangent with each other. So I find it very interesting how different communities interact with this idea of what's an emergency and how can we respond to it. Because growing up, we had to rely on each other to respond to most of our emergencies instead of um, calling 911 and being worried about what that process would do to our community. Will it become 
a over-policed community? Mm -hmm. Will that give our police department a excuse to surveillance our communities? To I remember in the summertime, they used to have these, what we call paddy wagons, but um, these little like vehicles that would sit on the corners of each of our streets and surveil us and watch who was walking in and out of our community and how uncomfortable it made us feel as children to have such a heavy police presence in mm -hmm. a regular neighborhood. Um, so calling 911 always seemed like a dramatic yeah, event. An invitation you don't want to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even for situations that probably could have um, benefited from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about um, how legal scholars are wrestling with this idea around calling 911 as potentially um, a racial microaggression or is something that mm. I think is a more compelling argument, um, a sort of racist covenant hmm. that white people in the U.S. are raised with the idea that they can call 911 uh, when a Black person or other person of color is making them uncomfortable uh, and that 911 will respond to that discomfort, that that's good enough to count as an emergency in a lot of our systems. Um, and so that's a really obviously sort of a critical read of how 911 operates and should operate, but mm -hmm. I think it's a really insightful understanding of how it actually does operate, uh, which is that in that moment of potential emergency or in those feelings of fear, people make decisions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when they make those decisions, uh, we're, we just see the immediate um, effects of racism and other forms of bias in how they decide when to call 911 and on whom and who's a threat and who's not. Mm -hmm. And I also even think about, so like, not only when black people make white people uncomfortable, like, okay, let's call the police, but also when black people don't listen. Mm. Now it dictates an emergency, mm. right? Like I gave you an order to leave this park. I gave you an order to leave this space this public space mm -hmm. that you may or turn your music down or turn your music down right. or yeah. you can't have a barbecue here you can't occupy this public space and i told you that now i'm calling 911 mm -hmm. and so it's almost as if when black people don't listen to the power dynamic that socially or even inside someone's head mm -hmm. they believe that they have over another group of people now that dictates a emergency mm -hmm. i've heard police also talk about how that they don't appreciate being called for people's interpersonal problems Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, you could have talked to the man who was in the van on your street um, and yeah. just asked him, hey, what's going on? You didn't have to call the police. <laughs> yes. He wasn't doing anything, truly. Yeah. yeah. It almost seems like there needs to be mediators somewhere in between um, that can mediate people's problems almost. Because not everything is emergency like 911. Like if you're having a problem with your neighbor about the line of the grass, that's right. like not it, a 911 concern. Right. Is this a heart attack or is this... An interpersonal problem. An interpersonal problem. Yeah. yeah. One thing, Liz, I didn't think about before the the book was about how the, our system is really based on, on like home phones and mm, yeah. how it doesn't do so well with cell phones, first of all. And... Also, just how differently the structures can be set up based on where you are. Like, I never, I guess I never thought about is the, are the 911 operators working underneath the police department or are they working as, in like city services along with, you know, trash and rec and, and other areas? So, you know, where emergency, and are they treated more like clerical workers or are they call center workers or are they emergency responders? And how much that actually impacts our, you know, their, their, their work, their impact on, on society, and then our outcomes as people who engage with those services. Never thought about that. Yeah. No, absolutely. That was one of the first things I found in this project that I had never realized uh, is that 911 is structured completely differently across the country uh, on state levels and even community to community. Um, sometimes we're talking about call takers in a sheriff's department. Sometimes they are themselves sworn law enforcement officers. Hmm. Sometimes they're civilians. Sometimes they work in a completely separate facility. Um, and some dispatchers dispatch, you know, fire, medical and police. Some only do one or two. Hmm. Um, so it's a really variable system, uh, which is something that I think is not well publicized or understood. Nope. Uh, it's like the phone number's the same. <laughs> yes. Exactly. 
And, and it's something that really disempowers communities because we tend to assume that, you know, the number's the same, it works the same everywhere. And we don't often ask questions about how it works here, right? How it works in my community is different than how it works in your community. Uh, and those differences can be really powerful in terms of um, how call takers respond to calls, the level of agency and authority they have in decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, because the call taker is the first person who will sometimes get a call and be like, this is not an emergency, call the regular number. Or, you know, this is a prank call, I'm not sending anyone. Mm. Um, so that level of agency is something that we see more often in civilian centers mm. uh, than we do in um, law enforcement centers, which tend toward um, an emphasis on sort of sending out someone on every call just in case. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, okay, I would love to talk about, um, gosh, two things. Well, there's so much to talk about. Um, I want to talk about what safety looks like on college campuses and oh, yeah. also about how technology, um, location sharing, um, all of our smart, quote unquote, smart devices, you know, how that how that shapes us too. Cause I think about neighborhoods um, and also campus and just, you know, more and more security cameras all the time. It, it just, I can't stand walking through the neighborhood and seeing all these nest or uh, not nest. Oh, yeah. What are they called? Oh, the cameras. The ring, the doorbells, door, ring doorbells. The ring, yeah. Or, or seeing, um, you know, the, the way people talk about those on, on next door. So everyone with their security surveillance oh, yeah. cameras and, and just, I, I, I'm just so deeply uncomfortable about it, and it's the world we live in. Um, so anyway, tech, campus, where do y'all want to go? Uh, I think tech on college campuses in the last five, ten years have changed drastically on mm -hmm. how we think about safety, how do we think about students and what do they use, and how can they interact with campus or law enforcement, and how can they respond to an emergency or report an emergency. You know, many of our campuses have blue light systems. Right. Um, some campuses, all the machines are working. Sometimes they're on, sometimes they're not. They tend to be connected directly to that campus police force, which mm -hmm. may or may not be sworn in police officers, um, may be completely separate entities or may work in tangent, depending on your university. A lot of universities have apps, like we have an app here mm -hmm. that directly connects to your university's law enforcement where you can respond anonymously, which there may be some questions about doing that, um, where you can talk to a law enforcement officer, you can report emergencies, you can also even share your location with a friend or with police themselves until you feel like you're in a safe place. Yeah, so that, that was an interesting point that I hadn't thought about in in. Um, yeah. In the book, because I was thinking about back in college that there were groups of, you know, you could call this number and then somebody will meet you outside wherever party or library or wherever you are and walk you home. And then how you can do that digitally now, share your location. And I can see some great benefits to that. And also um, it spooks me. Hmm. Yeah, these are all great points about the kinds of um, sort of campus safety technologies that we see implemented. Um, I'll just make a quick point about the blue light emergency phones, which is that most of those started to be um, installed in the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, and we've actually seen evidence that from the beginning, people knew they were not going to be particularly um, effective. I often wonder if they are actually connected. I, well, sometimes they are. Sort of like a light pole. To me, sometimes often, often, often they're connected, um, but often they break down. They're expensive to maintain. Um, I talked with um, folks here at UVA to try to get a sense of how often ours were being used. Oh, I'm very curious about um, that. And I learned that uh, the campus police are tasked with checking. So, ninety percent of the button pushes they'd ever received were just police officers checking to make sure that it worked. Um, hmm. And most of the others that they received were um, essentially hangups, nobody was there. Hmm. Uh, or they were kind of small events, like I am locked out of my apartment, I don't remember where I parked my car, hmm. um, 
these sorts of things. Use for true emergency was pretty low. Um, and when we think about these being installed really directly in the wake of the Jean Cleary uh, rape and murder, as a response to sexual violence, they're particularly ineffective. Right. Um, most sexual assault doesn't happen outdoors. Right. Um, most sexual assault is committed by people known to the victim. Uh, and so as a technology, they're not particularly effective at doing what they say they do. So you have to wonder what else they do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the things that they do really well uh, is create a sense of security for some people, right. um, particularly parents and potentially young women who understand them to be there as a sign that the university cares about safety, is doing something about safety. Um, they're very visible. Uh, and so they function more as like emotional reassurance than as an actual safety measure. Um, now that we're getting to the point where people realize that they're very rarely used and that most of your students are carrying a cell phone, campuses are starting to talk about pulling these out. Uh, and the response that we see from the technology providers who built these phones uh, is to repurpose them with sort of more contemporary safety technologies, hmm. uh, installing sirens or speakers to broadcast safety messaging, um, installing surveillance cameras on the blue light phone, mm -hmm. um, mm. right? So simply taking an older safety technology and mounting new stuff on top of it. This idea of changing and repurposing. Yeah, that doesn't sound ideal. Well, it sounds like a better usage than what it's currently doing, I suppose. I guess so, but... I, and this is where maybe our generational differences, but mm -hmm. I mean, just like you don't want the, the, the paddy wagons on the corner in the this neighborhood, do we want the surveillance cameras on campus feeding to the police department? Well, I think it's because there already are in so many universities. Like That's there's true. already a lot of cameras and lobbies mm -hmm. on buildings, on the outside of buildings. And so I think a lot of current college students are already accustomed to when you're in a public space, that public space is monitored. Mm, yeah. Especially something like a university setting where there's very few spaces that are not monitored via camera, um, depending on the size and budget of your university, I would say. But also, uh, I'm thinking about, like, yeah, when I see a blue light system, I think more about the illusion of safety than actual sure. physical safety. Like, oh, this may be a safe area because this is monitored. I mean, there's somehow. another light. There's another light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see how it could kind of create this illusion of safety. But I think about students today yeah. and how they interact with safety is, you know, sharing your location mm -hmm. on Find My iPhone with your friends. Yeah. I go out to a party so you can check it later at night to make sure they got home safe. So you can also find your friends and see what they're doing throughout the day at any point of the day, which may be a little creepy to think about that way. But <laughs> people yeah. my age use these things. Uh, yeah. It's, right, right, right. What are some of the drawbacks of sharing your location, you know, your iPhone having access to how many steps you take a day, the locations you go to, like all the tracking Like of all literally these everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A track of every, sort of your subconscious mind in terms of Google and all the <laughs> yeah, messages that you send, your heartbeat. Um, I mean, so Liz, I had a flip phone um, from <laughs> summer 2019. So I had an iPhone and then... Um, started to feel really, especially as a teacher, being in classrooms, and I'm like, oh, this is like full of young people and everybody's just on their phone, and they're not engaging, and it's quiet, and I'd seen a shift, and mm -hmm. that, that just started to freak me out a lot, in addition to the feeling uncomfortably addicted to it myself. Um, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to get a flip phone, and that was a, that's a whole other episode, um, but I had that just until a few months ago when, you know, all of a sudden, for some reason, you can't use 3G anymore, so... Now I have an iPhone again. Um, but I did realize, like, there was no, I just, I realized how my sense of safety was tied to GPS and location tracking and no, always sort of knowing where I was in physical space um, and being able to contact people. Because without GPS for years, like, if I'm somewhere and I'm lost, which happened all the time, <clears throat> I sort of had to reorient because, um, I didn't know where I was. There wasn't an easy way to figure out where I was. Um, 
and that's how it always used to, to be. And I also like the freedom of not being constantly tracked. Mm. But it was challenging, too. But I just realized, like, how these technologies, like, now, without our phones, <clears throat> I had a student this week, yeah, or yesterday, actually, talking about how, you know, he left his house without his phone to go to a job interview, got to the job interview, freaked out, like, had a panic attack because he didn't have his phone. He left before the interview, Oof. obviously didn't get the job. I mean, mm. they're so tied to our sort of sense of security. And then there are ways that, you know, we can f- check on people digitally and then we can ourselves feel okay that they're okay you know yeah yeah we often find that using these kinds of location services um it gets really deeply tied into people's sense of safety and security Mm -hmm. um knowing where you are knowing where your friends are knowing where your family is um can make people feel a lot more secure uh, in all kinds of ways Uh, But one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that um, people often talk about this kind of location sharing as something that they do out of care for one another, right? I do this because I care about my friends. I want to make sure they get home from this party. I have location sharing on because my mom feels better if she knows that I'm in my dorm at night. Um, And so you see that this surveillance of each other is really closely tied in uh, with you know, demonstrating care for the people in our lives, um, which makes it hard to then extricate from. Mm -hmm. Um, If you wanted to, um, you know, go somewhere for a personal trip, it's something you don't want your friends to know about and you turn off your location, it can spike worry that you're not trying to make anybody worry about you. You're just not sharing your location at this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Planning surprise parties is a little bit harder if uh, everyone's got their location sharing. On. Oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> oh, you leave your phone, but I'm not. I guess I mean cause some to worry, but right. Yeah, yeah. It is a sense of care. That's kind of how I ended up doing it. So for a long time, I was very against sharing my location. I thought it was weird. Mm-hmm. I feel like a particular safe person. Um, I'm always, I always feel safe by myself in public spaces. So right. I was never too concerned about sharing my location until my friends would like no. Because we love you, you need to send, like, we need your location. So I ended up sharing my location. But it is out of this sense of, like, love and community that people want to share their locations with one another. It's so, it's yeah, a mind I, bender to me. Well, yeah. Or even, like, apps <laughs> well, like I, Snapchat. Like, oh, right. Yeah. You can share your location with hundreds of people. You could. Well, well I don't, <laughs> but you could. One could. One could. One could. Well, and I think one thing that was really interesting that came out of talking to um, undergrads at uh, UVA is that particularly for um, students of color and students from uh, specific religious communities, Hmm. they really valued location sharing because it let them see where there were other people like them, Mm. right? And which parts of campus and which social spaces would be perhaps more welcoming at a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, location sharing gave them a sense of like, who's going to be there uh, that was really helpful in making them feel sort of safe and included. Right. Oh, that's an interesting point. I know. Well, I, at, at Wisconsin, I remember I had a a colleague, I forget the context, but who had a bunch of students draw um, or gave them a campus map and had them like color the spaces where they felt safe and um, students of color. So this is like sort of an analog version of what you're talking about. They would color yeah. like the multicultural center, um, the union terrace. And then that was it while, where you have, or maybe their room, you know, their dorm, their mm-hmm. particular floor. And then you have white students who like color all different spaces all over where it's, um, and I, I would imagine the same thing in terms of, location sharing too yeah it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. and it kind of goes back to um college safety right and i also think about universities being a very unique space so like where out in the community you may feel like 911 is the only place 
you can like seek relief from or report an incident. Where on college campuses, there tend to be a variety of people that you can tell about an incident. Like there's a lot of people you can report sexual assault to that are mandated reporters that can help you navigate that incident. There are so many people you can call and talk to before a police officer or before you call um, Hmm. like a community officer to help um, deal with this conflict, this arising tension or crisis that may be forming. That is really unique because, you know, we're, you know, college campuses are 99.9% adults. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're in a public university, Liz, we're at a public university. So there are also public spaces, um, but then have a sort of have a network of ways to, to keep students safe and have a, a, you know, an obligation to create an environment that's safe for students, which is an ongoing um, challenge for how to do that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, college is almost like a bubble. So the way we respond to emergencies here tends to be a lot uniquer than responding to it as a community member somewhere outside of a university. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are on campus and you live on campus and you have an emergency, you can talk to your RA, a hall director, someone that works for Residence Life to navigate almost as opposed to like a 911 operator, figuring out who's the next person to call and what's the next thing to do um, versus trying to respond to an emergency as a, like a homeowner in the neighborhood down the road. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And then on campuses, mm-hmm. you know, um, Liz, you talk so much in the book about this invisible media work um, mm-hmm. that is behind a lot of, you know, like declaring emergencies, actually writing the alerts, deciding what meets the threshold for like sending a statement in a world of <laughs> constant statements and <laughs> alerts. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. And there are people making decisions about how that should be. And on, on campuses, when do you send um, an alert and about whom and how do you write that um, in a way that... Oh, yes. It's a, a lot of know, tension around. A lot of tension. How do you write alerts for a college campus? What can you say? What can't you say? What's appropriate and mm-hmm. what's not? Yeah, and what do you have to alert the community about uh, under federal law versus what is sort of a broader warning? Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly, I'm seeing campuses try to um, offer alert services to broader communities. So not just students, faculty, and staff, but citizens of the surrounding town, parents, wherever they are, uh, can often opt in to university alerts. And they receive some, but not all, um, which is another sort of interesting decision moment. Who needs to know about this? Um, What is the relevant community? and just like 911, the decision makers who are writing these alerts can vary dramatically. At some universities, it's always just the chief of police. At some, hmm. they have an emergency management team who does uh, some of the writing. Um, sometimes uh, sexual assault releases go through the Title IX staff before they go out. So you have a range of different um, pathways that these messages take and a range of people involved in writing them. And then you have wildly different responses uh, when students get campus alerts. Um, There's some research on this that shows um, that men and women respond to them very differently. Uh, My colleague, Amy Hasanoff has done work on this uh, and found that usually uh, college women who receive uh, an alert of some sort of ongoing active situation are more likely to just stay where they are. If that's their room, if that's their classroom, if that's, you know, somewhere with their friends, they sort of stay in what feels like a safe place. Uh, Whereas a lot of young men receive those alerts and feel like they need to take a more sort of vigilante attitude. They need to keep Mm -hmm. an eye out for this person or they need to go out and see if they see anything. Um, (laughs) And so you have really different gendered responses to this information that is absolutely not what the authors intended um, to happen. Uh, and I imagine you would see similar differences around all kinds of demographics um, because how we respond to emergency media is just like how we respond to any other media. It's based mm-hmm. on what we know about the world and how we interact with it. Uh, and those things are tied to our experiences and our identities. Hmm. I, 
when she's telling this story, I just picture in my mind like a bunch of guys in a college classroom like standing up being like, <laughs> did you read the alert? Do you see them? Do you see them? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also so different from... Um, things are different in terms of uh, guns, you know, and shootings mm -hmm. that have just drastically changed schools in general. Um, but, you know, like I graduated high school in 99, the year that Columbine happened. And and that was that seemed like kind of a one off. And it wasn't like we weren't in college with the idea that mass shootings were possible on campuses in the way that it's so prevalent now. Completely different mindset. Um, and I think about you know, my, my mother-in-law recently was like, well, how come in schools kids can just be on their phones all day? And, you know, one big reason is like safety is because like, mm -hmm. hey, I have a friend who there was a lockdown at a school in New Haven, a few schools recently, and her kid was able to communicate with his parents on his phone. And so that safety component and, and that type of threat really sort of organizes our relationship to technology, I think, in a lot of ways. But then you think about, okay, like let's sexual assault on college campuses, huge problem. And mostly that's happening, like you said, with people that folks know. Yes. Um, it's happening. It's not happening outside and by next to a blue light phone. And mm -hmm. so, but when we had, when we send out like an emergency alert, that's often when something fairly extraordinary is happening versus the far more ordinary situations of the actual problem that actually it doesn't mm -hmm. help us deal with the root causes in the same way. It doesn't organize that action towards solving the problem. Yeah, and I also think about emergency, like impacting more than one person. Yes. Like it's going to be like mm -hmm. a threat to the community versus a threat to a particular individual. Mm -hmm. Like something I suppose to be on the lookout for, um, to watch out for. And I'm also thinking, when you're talking about this, a lockdown. Sure. In a high school, I experienced... Mm -hmm lockdowns all the time mm. you know like they were shooting around the corner lock the school down they found something suspicious in the school lock the school down right someone sent in a threat because he wanted to skip a test lock the school down and so we experienced so many lockdowns that like lockdowns became a sense of normalcy and so for students mm -hmm. inside the building we never felt like it was an emergency we just felt like we had to be stuck in our room for a couple hours oh that is such a good point because you get it's it's so normal for yeah, it to happen yeah you get size to it yeah. And so how we respond yeah. to emergencies, it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. It becomes so normalized um, that it changes the way that you act, right? It changes the way that you feel in that moment of lockdown. It changes what you think you need to do or like, do we really have to do all of this? We'll do some of it mm -hmm. um, in a way that sort of waters down what's supposed to be a response to sort of extreme moments um, becomes normalized and it becomes harder to get that sort of full response because frankly, people don't trust the emergency messaging anymore. Right. Mm. Right. You're going to tell me it's a lockdown like four times this year. I, eventually I just, it doesn't register the same way. I stop mm. believing. Mm. And also that point about, you know, we all get alerted constantly we're like constantly notified and alerted and briefed yeah like every day all day long yes. i have our university's um police app mm -hmm. i have the alerts turned on for my university for weather for emergencies x y and z i have my city's emergency alerts on. oh yeah i have my amber alerts on and i also have the new york times app <laughs> oh and they're always alerting and new york times <laughs> always are. has an emergency yeah. And also, like, the, and it's never an article I want to read. No, never an article I want to read. No. And it was never truly an emergency to wake me up for breaking news. Breaking news. So mm. lots of alerts. Lots. Never of time. mind social media alerts and and other like yes notifications. Yeah. We are swimming in. And posting on social media about an emergency is so different because uh. you're not a, you're not posting to a like institution to a someone with power. You're like putting a plea out. Oh, let's talk about that. Yeah. 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 You're putting a plea out. So like students during a lockdown recording the lockdown, mm -hmm. telling social media they're scared, telling social media that there's an emergency happening. You're in a public space on a sub. I see these videos all the time on the subway in New York. People are recording behaviors, which may seem like an emergency. 
Um, and people may be looking for different things, whether it's and Facebook weather, Live, Facebook Live, mass mm-hmm. shootings, weather crises, all different things being shared on social media. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, sort of flip of what we often see, which is that emergency gets talked about in relation to authorities and institutions that have some kind of power to do something. With social media, we often see people trying to create um, that response out of their peers or a broader public. So like posting during a weather crisis or from a school shooting or an incident of police violence, all of these kinds of uh, recordings and sharing work to potentially activate a public, right? To make that public care, to make them see what's happening and understand that it is an emergency, that something should be done. Um, But what's tricky there is that the people who watch it often can't do anything, Mm. right? And so what we see with a lot of social media emergency use is this search for recognition and often an attempt to make that bigger point about Mm. something like climate emergency uh, or racist policing or um, school shootings, right? There's an attempt not just to say like, please respond to this immediate incident, but like, please see what is happening as something that we need to take action on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it makes us bigger claim than we see elsewhere. I do think that, you know, in terms of, I don't like, I don't know at what point I realized that not, that 911 isn't, I mean, I've never called 911 and I've avoided it my, myself. Um, but generally speaking, I do feel like that social media use and that kind of testimony has really shifted the cultural consciousness around Oh, when some people call 911 for help, they are killed. And that is not something that I would worry about mm. in calling 911. Mm-hmm. The only time I've ever felt comfortable calling 911 is when it's in direct relation to my profession. Uh-huh, sure. So like if mm-hmm. I didn't have to do it as a part of my job, I wouldn't have ever done it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it also changed like having to do it professionally and interact in a professional model made me feel like I had a little bit more authority over myself. Well, now myself. you know how to do it. Yeah, also. do it correctly. Because there's a lot of information you want to yeah. share. Right. right. There's a lot of things you want to tell the other person on the line to try to have some type of control over this situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little different when you're doing it for medical calls. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not, like, an active shooter or having a right. medical emergency. So I think that's a little different. But if you're talking about something more violent or more pressing in danger, I would be a little nervous to call myself. Mm -hmm. I would. Yeah. And so Liz, before we let you go, um, let's talk about some of the ways um, you end the book with this ways that we can reimagine um, what safety looks like and, and what emergency, how, how, how we can engage with, you know, each other and, and these systems um, that we have long taken for granted or not, really had a say in how they operate necessarily as members of the public. Um, and in a lot of ways, it sort of takes us back maybe to the beginning in terms of how Jamil was talking about how his neighborhood was operating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, a great way to end um, because even in writing this book, I wanted to go beyond like emergency is not operating how we think it is. I wanted to give people something to do. Uh, and I think that, you know, some of this is just a matter of awareness, like, knowing how your 911 operates and who you're talking to and then being prepared to say, talk to your city government and make it operate differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do that if you never think about it. Um, so we have steps like that. Um, but I also think that part of what we want to move towards is something that is not based on either everything is normal and here is an emergency. Let's get back to normal as quickly as possible. Right. We want to be able to find ways of engaging with each other um, that are based on commitments of care, that are based on ongoing interactions, um, ongoing ways of providing support and providing alternatives. I liken it to um, emergency rooms, right? The American healthcare system is so impossible to navigate and so expensive that we often put off care until we have to go to the ER. Mm -hmm. And then actually the care we receive is rushed and biased and even more expensive. Um, 
And a, a lot of our emergency systems operate in the same way. We don't know what to do when there's a small crisis. And so we end up waiting until it's an even bigger crisis uh, and then having trouble with what to do and what the impact will be. Hmm. So I, I looked towards um, examples of mutual aid and uh, disability community as two spaces where people are regularly engaged in providing ongoing care to one another um, for small needs before they become emergencies, as well as in emergency situations where people can care for one another rather than relying on the state or other institutions. Mm. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I... We do a lot of reimagining on this podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. something I think about with like, this book talks a lot about, you know, being a judge of what a crisis is, what emergency is, you know, how do we believe we're judging this? And I think, you know, if we all knew our communities a little bit better, mm-hmm. often we live in communities where we never speak to our neighbor, where we don't know who lives up the street from us. Yeah. Um, we don't know people's pre-aligned conditions, like maybe the person two doors from now two doors down from me is elderly or they have a disability and I'm not even aware of that because I don't speak to my neighbor. So when it comes time for a crisis, even something like weather related, like we're having a hurricane, Mm -hmm. are you checking on your neighbors? Do you know about your neighbors? How many people live there? Do they need help if a certain thing happens? And so I think going back to being connected and having a sense of community is important when responding to emergencies. And I from reimagining how we respond to emergencies, I would reimagine how we build our own communities and how connected we all feel with each mm. other first. Because if you are connected with your neighbors and you are connected with the folks that you interact with every day, maybe we can be a better judge of what emergency is and isn't. Absolutely. I think there's so much of like people like peering out the window and then calling 911 or you know, making assumptions about people as opposed to actually knowing who they are um, and, and who's mm-hmm. in their neighborhood. And those are shifts that we can make that is very accessible to us. Um, we can shift the culture of the, the block that we live on, the building mm-hmm. that we live in. Um, and that's very a very accessible way to do that. It also feels better, I think, as a, as a human being. Yeah. We all... Especially yeah. in this moment. We all seek human connections. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's a tough time right now with COVID. I mean, I see that in yeah. in classrooms too, that we're really sort of re-socializing with one another and learning how to be together. I mean, people know how to be together, but on but on their phone in a lot of ways, you know? So it's mm-hmm. learning how to how to be in, in not just physical space with each other, but in authentic connection with each other, whether that's via technology or, you know, in person. Yeah. Mm. This is lovely. Very. Yeah. Before we go, <laughs> I tell folks where they can find your book. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, so the book is published by New York University Press. Uh, it's available through their website. Uh, it's also available um, from major booksellers um, online and elsewhere. Um, I believe my personal website still has the discount code. Oh. <laughs> so if, um, Liz org um, has the discount code there as well. So if you want 30% off from New York University Press, go there. We will put that in the show notes. We will put that in the show notes. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, Liz, this has been fantastic. We truly love this book. Um, and it's a, a conversation that, you know, is, is so familiar and yet so new at the same time. So thank you for for putting this book out into the world and for talking with us today. Yes, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been great to get a sense of other people's thoughts about it. Writing a book during COVID is a tough and strange experience. So it's been wonderful to hear other people thinking through these ideas. And thank you both for your examples and contributions because I am so excited to be thinking about this with others. 